Please sit down. Well, just seeing if the, <laughs> there we go. Could you run it for me, Johnny? It doesn't look like it's going to decide to do anything for me. Well, <clears throat> Truth on Trial is the, the title that, uh, that I've been given for this, this passage. And certainly there was a trial. Uh, but also, I think, as we move on to the next slide, there is certainly a lot of truth. And I think the interesting thing as we look at this passage is that you'll see there were <clears throat> a number of types of truth, as it were, that were on trial at this particular event. Uh, and I think as we understand that, it begins to help us to see really something of the, of the powerful significance, not just for what was going on with Paul, but what goes on for us in terms of truth being on trial. So the first thing is to notice that there's historical truth that's on trial here. Paul is extremely keen to underline the fact that what he's preaching about is really very much in line with what's been happening historically in God's people down through the ages. Part of the dynamic of this, of course, he is a Jew, uh, but he's being attacked by his own people, or at least the leaders of his own people. So he's very keen to point out that what he's talking about is not an aberration. It's not moving aside from the work of God in his people, but it's actually the culmination of it. But that culmination is seen through history, through how God acted in, Mo in Abraham, Moses, and, and the prophets, and the kings, and so on, and how ultimately the prophets are speaking about God will send one day someone who will be his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, and he through his suffering in an amazing way, is actually going to bring about the fulfilment of, 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 of all that God's people hope for, which is God's rule completely happening on earth and so on. And the second aspect of that historical truth then is about Jesus, is about how he actually is the Messiah and how he did come and he did live and he did die and he did come to life again it's especially in the resurrection that Paul is very clear to point out this is a historical reality it's not some sort of metaphor it's not some sort of legend it is something that simply happened Paul in one of his letters is very clear about this he talks about if Christ hadn't died we are of most people to be pitied if he hadn't risen from the dead because then we're without hope but Paul is very clear that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose again. And that in that resurrection, that historical reality that he puts before Festus, before Agrippa and says, look, this is the historical reality I'm talking about. This is what happened. This is why I am speaking to you now. That, that's really very, very important to get across because basically at the end of the day, Christianity is a historical faith, i.e. it's based in history. It may be a long while ago, but that history has continued. And actually, the communion is one of the ways in which we, re we remember we're linked historically right the way back to the, to, to the upper room with Jesus. And just as he broke bread, we broke bread. Just as he drank wine, we drink wine. And it's a sign of the historical rootedness of Christianity. 
And it's one of those things that we need to, if you like, remember, hold on to and, and speak about. Because these are not things that are myths. Peter says we don't uh, talk of myths in his letter. But we're talking about the, the historical rootedness of our faith. And it's interesting that Paul speaks about how he has uh, explained this all reasonably and clearly. He, he's put it before people. He hasn't, uh, as it were, embroidered it. He hasn't done anything to, um, uh, to, to beef it up. He's just put before people, for a test, for a trial, the historical truth uh, of Christianity, of what he's about. But the second type of truth is that there's also a personal truth that's going on here. In other words, it's Paul's own testimony of what it meant for him to meet up with Jesus Christ. He talks about meeting Jesus. He talks about the reality of his experience of Jesus on a personal level. It happened to me, he's saying. Jesus said, you, I'm speaking to you. When he said to this amazing vision that he had, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. There was a drawing of Paul face to face with the reality of Jesus himself and what Jesus meant and that he had to change his life because of it. That this was not... uh, Something that was, uh, well, as he said, done uh, himself in a corner. There was something powerful that happened that personally impacted him so that he had to give testimony to it. And actually, personal testimony, as it were, personal, personal testifying is an extremely powerful thing because at the end of the day, you can't dismiss it, can you, really? Well, you can if you want to be of that mind, but... It's a bit unfair to just say to people, oh, well, that's just what you think. Especially when lots of people think that. Especially when down through the ages of the church, it's that personal engagement with God that's been at the heart of things. Although we might have embroidered it, as it were, or loaded all sorts of traditions and all sorts of ways of doing things on it, at the end of the day, what binds all Christians together It's the simple fact that we know God in Jesus Christ. And he knows us. There is a relationship established that prayer is the heart of that has simply changed our lives and made them different, has put them on a different course of action and we believe has actually actually filled them with something better, with God's own spirit. We've somehow become now united with the very heart of the universe. And all things that are, are wrong and bad can get sorted out and there is a hope of, of something far better into the future. This is, this is the gospel, this is the good news. But it's personal testimony that actually can make that very, very um, powerful to people. It's obviously rooted in historical truth and the two together constitute a really powerful um, exposition if like or demonstration of of the of the fact that that what we believe in Jesus is real just notice a couple of things about how Paul went about his testimony it was very honest in the first place he talked about his own background he talked about the wrong things he'd done he talked about he'd gone along uh, you know he'd gone along the wrong route and uh, and it even had actually even voted when Christians were condemned to death that may be a reference to to Stephen because we know that he was present when Stephen was martyred and it said uh, the, the the coats of the people stoning Stephen they were put at 
at Saul's feet, as he was called then. He was the man who held the coats whilst people did in Stephen. And he's, he's clear about that. He doesn't hide that. He doesn't pretend anything. It's important that whatever we say when we're testifying uh, about Jesus is honest, that we're not embroidered, we're not talking about it as though it's more than it is or less than it is. We don't pretend that really, well, actually, we've come to faith because we're quite good people and, you know, and that's, uh, that's uh, you know, this is the right thing to do. Sorry, that doesn't wash. That really doesn't wash. Paul's very clear that he was a sinner. He'd gone wrong. He wasn't what he should have been. None of us are what we should have been. And it's important that we're honest about that and don't pretend in any way, shape or form that, that somehow we're Christians because we are good. That really is, is not where it's at. It's about Jesus. Second thing was it was very clear what he said. Simple, straightforward, ordinary language. There was, no, there was nothing, as it were, held back or nothing, in, nothing put into jargon or anything like that. I think there is a tendency sometimes when, when we talk about uh, Christian things that we tend to use our own language, don't we? Every, you know, every, uh, every organisation has its own sort of language. But the danger is that that cuts you off from people who don't share that language. So the language of Zion, it's sometimes talked about. You know, we talk about being washed in the blood of the Lamb or, or being saved. Well, what does that mean to people who don't know from the inside what it means? Paul doesn't use language like that. He's very clear. He, he uses ideas that the people listening will understand. He's clear about that. Uh, but he, he's, he's quite... Well, he just wants them to understand. And he tries to put the, what has happened to him and what the good news is into words that will be understood. It's really important that that happens. And then there's finally one more truth. So you haven't got far to wait now. Uh, and I've called this one spiritual truth. Now, quite honestly, I had trouble with this. I was trying to think, what do I mean by that? Or what, what, what should be? And what I really mean by that is spiritual in the sense of what is eternally significant. Okay? What is really important that changes us and works in us now and into the future? And not just the future next week, but the future that goes beyond even death. Now, this is a truth that, in a sense, we won't fully comprehend until we enter into it and experience of it. But it's certainly what Paul is wanting to say to them, because he wants them, he challenges them to take on board what he's saying for their own future and for their own spiritual state, for their own eternal state, if you like. So he says to them, look, here are the facts of Jesus' life. He puts that out before them. Uh, in verses 9, verse 23, and so on. And then he says, and this is the significance of Jesus as well. It wasn't just that he was a good man who died. No, he rose again, and that has turned the world upside down. That's changed what human life can be. This can now, we can now be people living at one with God instead of at odds with God. We can be people who can know what wholeness means into eternity, not just here and now. That's the significance of it. And he made that very clear to them as well. And then he said, therefore, you need to respond. You need to do something about it. You need to make, you need to repent, he says. You need to turn around from the way you're going and go in God's way with Jesus. That's what you need to do. And you need to let your life now show what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means to be a follower of the one 
who, who said, let little children come to me. What it means to be the follower of one who said to the woman taken in adultery, uh, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. What it means to be the one who was a friend of sinners and, and accept, you know what I'm driving at. It needs to change us so that the values and the actions of our lives are actually based fully in Jesus. That's the spiritual truth that he was challenging people to actually respond to. It's amazing he got away with it when you think about it, isn't it, really? But I guess he did have that protection of uh, having appealed to Caesar and so on. That's, that's pretty good, I see. So, okay, just one final question. Why did Paul go through all this? <laughs> when you think about it, he was a very intelligent man. Uh, he had quite a decent life. He was honoured and so on. He could have just, just carried on like that. So why was it that he found himself on trial, as it were, the trial for truth? I think, firstly, it was simply because there was a reality he had come across in Jesus. And he, he had to, you know, he couldn't ignore that. It was there. It was a big lump of, tr- of truth that he couldn't get around. And it's worth, you know, testing ourselves out sometimes, you know. How... How, how driven are we by the realities of what God has done for us and in us? Because that's certainly what was going on in Paul. The second thing was, he was just obedient to that. He realised, I've got to do it. I've got to do. You know, this is something I can't ignore. This is something that is so big, it can't be uh, left. Uh, it's interesting, you know that bit where the, Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Presumably, we, we think that refers to, you know, when you were driving, like, like everybody does every day, driving some cattle along, you know. You poke them with a stick. That was the go to keep them moving. It appears that quite clearly, before Paul met Jesus, as it were, in that way, on the road to Damascus, he was feeling uncomfortable about this Christianity thing. There were things poking him about it that, that, that he... There were truths being attached to him that he he didn't like, but he was having to wrestle with. And that that really is um, is what made him eventually have to obey. He he was overwhelmed by the truth of his own experience and the history of it and so on and so forth. So here we have Paul talking about the good news. And I guess the important thing is to say, okay, what about us today then? What do we do? How do we respond to all of this? Thankfully, we are not in the midst of persecution, at least not very obviously. Some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world simply are, but we're not. Paul was in that circumstance of of difficult situations. We're in a situation now, really, in this country, which is, it's not so much persecution as ignoring, isn't it, really? faith in all sorts of ways has just got sort of gently pushed to the side there's sort of an overall sense in government particularly in the media that well all that matters is what you can feel and touch and taste everything else is a bit airy fairy and isn't real what really matters is celebrity what matters is money what matters is uh, getting on in the world. What matters is having big, you know, houses, etc., etc. And anything that seems to to talk about values of of 
patience and kindness and compassion and justice. Well, no, we, we don't want to talk too much about that. What matters is the individual getting what they want. That, that's the world in which we're living, really and truly at the moment. So how do we respond to that? I want to suggest there's two things, really. There's a corporate response. And what I mean by that is is a response to how our society is pushing people at the moment and how we, as part of a body, need to respond to that. What do I mean by that? Well, take as an example, for instance, the Grenfell Tower disaster, okay? And what followed on from that? And what followed on from that was a huge effort by the local community to look after the people who'd been in the tower, right? Okay? And there was lots of pictures on there, on the TV, radio, and all that. Well, no pictures on the radio. Lots of pictures on the TV and in the news and all the rest of it. How many of them said that that was led by the Christian churches? How many of them said that other faiths were involved as well in doing that? Frankly, none of them did. Certainly not initially. It was only if you looked closely at the pictures and saw it was the Methodist church where they were all building, you know, stores, that you realised that that was what was going on. And I think there is a sense in which we, as Christians, need to say to our media, how about being a bit more honest about what's going on? Who is doing these good things? Who is caring? Who is trying to build community? Which organisation is the organisation which has the largest number of preschool playgroups in this country? It's the churches. Which organisation has the largest number of youth workers working amongst young people in this country? It's not the statutory authorities. It's the churches. Just as the state has retreated from a lot of things, the church has moved in. What gave rise to the hospice movement? You know, caring for people who are, who, who are dying at the very end. What gave, where did that start? It started with Dr Cicely Saunders, a Christian medical doctor, who, I can't remember how many years ago now, it was a long while ago, set up St Christopher's Hospice to care for people in the last moments of their life, as it were, without pain. But it was because of her Christian faith that that happened. I think we need to try and say to to our society sometimes, look, a lot of the good things that are going on are there because of Jesus Christ. And you've got to reckon with that. Please don't pretend it's not there. We're asking you to acknowledge the truth of things, the historical truth of things. But then again, and finally, there's also a personal response, our response, my response and your response. Because at the end of the day, What authenticates, what proves, if you like, in inverted commas, the reality of the good news of Jesus is how we show it, how we live it, whether our lives mirror the life of Christ or not. That's, that's, it's been like that down through the ages. That's what was happening with Paul. That's what happens with us. And I think this is where often, now this is the point in the sermon where everybody begins to squirm and begins to feel a bit on the guilty side and wish I'd shut up. Yes, right, okay, I know that. Look, what I'm not saying is you should all be guilty because you don't rush out of these doors and start telling people about Jesus or you're preaching on the street corners or whatever. I'm not saying that. 
Because I don't think that actually helps very much, in a sense, if you're just doing things out of guilt. What I am saying is that what Jesus means to us is what will show when we try to testify to. So the reality of Jesus is the thing that really matters. And this is why our own personal walk with him is an absolutely critical thing. Sometimes we talk about discipleship, uh, following Jesus, and that's very important. But I think at the heart of discipleship is knowing Jesus. Now, you'll all say, well, of course I know him. Yeah, I know you know him. You've given your life to him and so on. But how did you know him in this last week? What sort of things happened to you in this last week where you thought, oh, that was Jesus, or that was God's love, or the Spirit was, was at work with me there? Because I'm willing to bet that that wasn't a continual experience. <laughs> because it rarely is, in a sense. But part of our growing in our faith is that that becomes more of a real experience for us as we pray, as we engage with... And prayer is simply talking, communication, conversation with God. It's not something that we have to hive off into special bits and pieces and corners. It's something we can do moment by moment. Yes, it can be focused in certain places. That's very helpful. But it's meant to say to us, look, God's with us all the time. God cares about you, whether you're on your knees praying or whether you're doing the washing up. God's still with you. God's still loving you. God's still present. God's still inspiring you. God's still listening to you. God's still lifting up your problems and and helping you with them. And I think what I think the message that God is giving more and more clearly to us is grow that relationship more. Discover how prayer can help. Discover different ways of praying. Discover the depth of things that are going on in communion, discover the realities of, that the Bible talks about actually coming alive in, in our daily lives. Discover the, the strength there is in community as Christian people. Discover the value in, in one another as we learn in, about Jesus. That personal response is the thing that gives to our testimony, our personal truth, a real edge of authenticity that people will know we're not spinning a line or shooting a line. We're not trying to sell a product. We're simply trying to talk about someone we know who matters to us, who's very real to us, who loves us and whom we believe loves the world and wants that world to discover just how much it's loved so it can be lifted out of its sin and the mess that it's in and grow into the kingdom where Christ is at the heart of it, and where truth and justice have met, and where peace and love reign. That's what it's all about. That's what this trial, I think, was all about. And what we need to do is to deepen our relationship. I think that's what God is saying. Deepen your relationship with me. Now, I gave you all, uh, I hope you've all got a bit of gold thread as a reminder. One of the things I found helpful sometimes with those little bits of thread, has God said something particular to you today? Is there something that's come out, maybe as you took communion, maybe as you sang, maybe as even perished the thought as I've been speaking? Something. Well, if that's so, why not just tie a little knot in your bit of cord, all right? So that when you see that in the week, where you put it in your pocket or on your 
shelf somewhere. You see that knot and that reminds you of what God's been saying to you, what God has been doing with you. Because, you know, you and I, well, me possibly more so in my advancing years, memory is not always as accurate or as effective as it used to be. Uh, And uh, I found myself praying a little while ago in public and suddenly found that the words I wanted to say I couldn't remember anymore, which was a little bit worrying. However, they came eventually, so don't worry, I'm not quite gaga yet, but you know, maybe on the way, but not yet. Yeah, yeah. But put a knot in that thing to remind you what God has said today, because God wants to speak to our hearts every day, wants to assure us of his love every day, wants to perhaps nudge us in a particular way every day, because he wants us to know how much he loves us. Let's just be quiet and pray for a few moments, shall we? Just to reflect quietly on what we've heard.